0: You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the RoomNow faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy.
1: Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope reporting from at RoomNow. I'm also Janet Burdope on Twitter, so please follow me. I'd like to talk about what's cool and what's hot in vasculitis. So there's a lot of sessions at the ACR uh, 2021 that could be quite interesting in vasculitis. So I'll just highlight a few this time around. So abstract 505 is looking at VTEs from a large VA population throughout the U.S. And they're looking at VTEs comparing to osteoarthritis patients, age and sex matched, and looking in three groups giant cell arteritis or GCA, GCA plus PMR or PMR alone. And it was kind of interesting to me. Of course, you would think that clots are higher, arterial and venous and active inflammatory disease such as GCA or PMR compared to OA. And that indeed was was found. What's interesting and unusual is that it was kind of a dose response and not the way I would have thought about it. GCA had the most clots, arterial, venous, and of course, retinal occlusions. Then it was PMR with GCA, and then it was PMR, and all of them being higher than OA. And I don't know why that is, but I wonder if someone with PMR plus GCA maybe has less full burden of vascular disease. Don't know. We'll have to wait and see how the story unravels. The next thing that's kind of hot is subclinical large vessel vasculitis in PMR. And that might also be why there's more clots. And that was uh, illustrated nicely in abstract 466. And a symptom or a sign of ANCA associated vasculitis um, that's really under recognized is well described in this abstract. So, abstract 430 looked at the incidence or prevalence of interstitial lung disease in ANCA vasculitis. So, we tend to think of large cavitating lesions. But in this abstract, they're looking at a retrospective chart audit and a large number of patients. And they found that ILD is actually quite frequent. It's almost as high as one in three. So I think that's something I have to keep in mind when I'm seeing my patients. Then there was another study looking at treatment so this is looking at abstract 507 and looking at an RCT and PMR of tocilizumab versus placebo and what you could do was get really aggressive steroid sparing in a positive way to help our patients not run into side effects if you use tocilizumab far more steroid sparing in PMR on tocilizumab than placebo what else is hot? Well, hot in PET scans. So Takayasu um, remains positive as a vasculitis for many years. It can relapse and remit clinically, but the PET scan done serially in many patients. With Takiyasu showed that it was still a hot scan over time. And that's abstract 504. So I think we have some clinical pearls of what we can take home when we start to see our patients with GCA, uh, PMR, and ANCA associated vasculitis or other large vessel vasculitis when we go back to the clinics after ACR 21. So please follow us at room now. Thank you.
0: Hi, I'm Jack Cush. I'm at ACR 21, it's the virtual meeting supposed to be in San Francisco, but it's not. I've got an interesting abstract. It's about the prevention of rheumatoid arthritis. It's one of those drug interventions into at-risk individuals who may progress. So we're talking about preclinical RA. You know, the numbers are basically, someone has preclinical RA, meaning arthralgias, ACMA positivity, sometimes first degree relative Uh, Their risk, if they're ACPA positive, of progressing to RA is somewhere between 20 and 60%. There are a number of trials that have been done and are currently in progress that have looked at whether drug intervention with DMARDs or biologics might uh, um, delay the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. That is one of the studies that are being presented at this year's ACR Today This is the ARIA study. It is abstract 0455. It's a plenary session presentation. In this study, it was a double-blind randomized controlled trial. They enrolled 100 patients. They had two patients drop out, one in each of the treatment groups. And the treatment groups were placebo and ABBA. These patients were not on Biologics and never been on Biologics, never been on DMARDs. They had arthralgias. They were ACPA positive. They had symptoms for about two years. They were MRI positive for inflammation, and the primary endpoint in the study was improvement in the MRI inflammation score. The intervention was either placebo or abatacep, given as a um, sub-Q injection once a week. Placebo was given as a dummy injection once a week. And patients were going to be followed for six months on drug, and then after that, drugs would be discontinued, and there was a 12-month follow-up for a total of 18 months. The primary endpoint here was shown in this study at six months. What was the rate of MRI improvement? They also looked at how many patients developed arthritis, etc. These patients going in were mostly female. They had, on average, a pain score of 4.2 on a 0 to 10 visual analog scale. They had about three tender joints and, per entry criteria, no swollen joints. So, In the end, they analyzed 98 patients, and at six months, MRI improvement was seen in 61% of those on abatacept and half that number, 31% on placebo. The number of people progressing to rheumatoid arthritis or arthritis was 35% on placebo and only 8% on abatacept that was highly significant, as was the MRI result. And then the other measure of clinical outcome here was how many people terminated. The ter- early termination rate was higher with placebo 43%, lower with avitasa 14%. That too was highly significant. So not much in the way of side effects, 12 adverse events, only one SAE series adverse event of pneumonia. But the, the, at this one time point, at six months, while on drug, clearly patients are better when they have preclinical disease. If you stop drug, what will happen? And that's what they're now going to do. Patients are going to then go off all therapy. They're going to be followed, both groups, for another 12 months. And then at the 18-month time point, we'll come back and look at this, hopefully next year. So this is interesting data. It's different than that seen in the Prairie study, where they gave one infusion of, of rituximab and followed... 87, 81 patients over time. Looked like it was a little bit better for the rituximab group, but again, in the end, everybody looked the same. But then again, you wouldn't expect rituximab 1 infusion to have more than a one-year effect or more than a six-month effect. So it still remains unknown whether or not uh, we should intervene in preclinical RA with DMART or biologic therapy. This is one bit of evidence. It's a small bit of evidence, but it's interesting nonetheless. Tune in for more videos here during ACR 21.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting for Room Now at the virtual ACR 2021. MRI is an important imaging modality in the evaluation of patients with rheumatic disease. Increasing data have shown its utility in the diagnosis of early rheumatoid arthritis among patients with clinically suspect arthralgia and also as a potential tool for monitoring disease activity or progression in the spondyloarthropathy. I want to talk about two interesting studies on MRI presented during day one of the abstract session. First off is this study by Dr. Bastian Van Dyke, I hope I pronounced his name right, and his team, Abstract 468, where they assessed the association between the occurrence of intermetatarsal bursitis and progression to clinical arthritis. They studied a large number of patients, around 577, who presented with clinically suspect arthralgia and were followed through for development of clinical arthritis. They evaluated for the presence of intermetatarsal bursitis, or IMB, and the rheumatoid arthritis MRI scoring system, or the ramris inflammation features, which include synovitis, tenosynovitis, and ostitis. Results show that IMB was frequently seen among ACPA-positive clinically suspect arthralgia patients, and those who have um, IMB were likely to have subclinical synovitis and tenosynovitis. The second study, on the other hand, abstract number 469, is by the group of Professor Xenophon Boreliakos, where they studied the imaging characteristics of patients with spondyloarthritis using a novel heel enthusiast um, MRI imaging scoring or the hemorrhage system. This was a post hoc analysis applying hemorrhage on data from the Achilles trial. That included patients with psoriatic arthritis or axial spondyloarthritis, had clinical and MRI positive heel enthesitis, and were refractory to standard treatment, either NSAIDs or TNF inhibitors. Enrolled patients were randomized to receive either secukinumab at one hundred fifty milligrams or three hundred milligrams or placebo. MRI positive heel enthesitis was defined as tendinitis or bone marrow edema in the area of the Achilles tendon and or the plantar aponeurosis. MRIs were then performed at screening week 24 and 52. Results showed that the mean improvements in total enthesial inflammation and total structural damage course were higher in the secukinumab-treated patients compared to placebo, the Achilles tendon showed higher responsiveness compared to that of the plantar fascia. Among the secukinumab-treated group, the highest mean change was observed for retrocalcaneal bursitis, tendon hypersignals, and erosions. So what do the results of these findings tell us? What is the added value of MRI, for example, in the early diagnosis of RA or as a monitoring tool for treatment amongst spondyloarthritis patients outside the setting of a clinical trial? Findings of the IMB study reinforces the idea that intra- as well as extraarticular synovial inflammation is involved in the pathogenesis of RA. On the other hand, for the HEMRI study, it is possible to monitor the effect of biologics such as secukinumab on enthesial inflammation using MRI. It can probably be used as an adjunct to clinical findings when making treatment decisions. Because MRI is relatively expensive and not readily available in some areas, like from where I come from, its use may be limited to certain patients who may present atypically are those who show can inconsistent clinical and laboratory findings. Follow me on Twitter at Roomarampa and tune in to RoomNow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021.
3: Thank you. Hello and welcome to the RoomNow coverage of ACR Convergence 2021. My name is Murnalani Day and I'm an academic rheumatology trainee from Liverpool in the UK. So, today I would like to highlight a couple of abstracts um, authored by Eleanor Nikki Foro and colleagues. Um, and these are abstracts numbers 0380 and 0381 on work disability and the impact of socioeconomic factors in patients with axial spondyloarthritis. So, um, these studies were conducted in the Desire cohort um, and they. Are being presented in the spondyloarthritis diagnosis, manifestations, and outcomes poster sessions um, on the Saturday of ACR. So, the first study um, in this group of two looked at the time to first episode of sick leave um, with a focus on socioeconomic um, predictive factors. And the second looked at the time to work disability, again with a focus on socioeconomic as well as clinical factors. So the studies included just over 700 people with axial spondyloarthritis. And when looking at factors associated with sick leave, um, it was found that male gender and higher education were independently associated with a lower hazard of sick leave, whereas older age and higher disease activity were associated with um, a greater hazard of sick leave. And then when studying work disability, so in the second abstract, um, this was infrequent in this particular cohort, but where it was present, um, clinical factors, again, such as higher disease activity, um, were found to be the strongest predictors. So these are two very important pieces of work demonstrating, firstly, uh, the, that greater disease activity negatively impacts both sick leave and work disability, indicating an ongoing need for better methods um, of disease control in this population. Um, but secondly, socioeconomic factors clearly profoundly affect the likelihood of sick leave in patients with ax Indicating a need not just for good pharmaceutical management of disease, but a holistic approach to encompass the social and quality of life factors in these patients. So abstracts 0380 and 0381, which I've described uh, in this video, are available in the Spondyloarthritis Diagnosis, Manifestations and Outcomes poster session um, if you'd like more content on ACR 2021, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Minnie Day um, and at RoomNow, or go to the RoomNow website for much more content. Thank you for watching.
4: Hello, this is Eric Ruderman from Northwestern University in Chicago, coming to you from ACR Convergence 2021 for RoomNow. I uh, wanted to give you some insight into some of the Uh, information on psoriatic arthritis that we're seeing at this meeting. Um, And today, actually, the first day of the conference, the first full day of the conference, uh, there's a plenary session uh, with data from the two phase three trials of Risenkizumab, the newest uh, IL-23 inhibitor for psoriatic arthritis. Uh, This data was actually first presented at ULAR, but this is the first time that uh, U.S. audiences will um, be seeing it in many cases. Um, two large phase three trials, a uh, total of about 1,400 patients in the two, uh, one of which was uh, was DMARD failures, and the other had a percentage of patients who were biodemard failures, a bit less than 50%. Uh, and the overall conclusion was that the drug was effective. Um, for psoriatic arthritis. Um, as many people know, L23 inhibitors are very effective for skin disease, and um, they're, one of their claims to fame is that they're given infrequently. Rizekizumab, uh, after an initial dose and a second loading dose in a month, is given every three months, which has uh, a lot of appeal for many patients. Um, the drug was effective, um, and uh, certainly better than placebo, though the effect size was somewhat smaller than we've seen with some of of our other drugs in the past in psoriatic arthritis, uh, perhaps because the placebo response was quite high at a bit over 30%. Um, My takeaway is that IL-23 inhibitors clearly work. This is the second drug. uh, Guzelcomab was approved last year uh, as another IL-23 inhibitor. And I think the challenge is trying to understand where these drugs are going to fit into our algorithm for treating psoriatic arthritis. Uh, With the IL-17 inhibitors, I think most rheumatologists are quite comfortable that they are as good as a TNF inhibitor for treating joint disease and probably better for skin disease, and we actually have some comparative studies uh, that show that. We don't yet have comparative studies with the IL-23 inhibitors, so it's a little hard uh, to put them into their proper place uh, in the algorithm for psoriatic arthritis to decide are they uh, as good as or or. Um, potentially better than some of the other drugs we already have. It does seem that at least for axial disease, IL-23 inhibition may not be the way to go. Um, So I think it may take some time as these drugs uh, are out in the market and as Rizn-Kizumab presumably is approved for treating psoriatic arthritis to really try to understand uh, where they're going to fit into our paradigm. Uh, For dermatologists, they love the IL-23 inhibitors. They're uh, great drugs for treating skin disease. Um, The safety profile is excellent, and they're given so infrequently. Um, Whether we're going to be using them quite as much in rheumatology uh, has yet to be seen, and I think we'll need to stay tuned, Uh, but it's always great to have additional options for therapy when we're treating our patients. Uh, for more information, please check out RoomNow at ACR Convergence 2021.
3: Hello and welcome to the Room Now coverage of ACR 2021 and um, the ACR Convergence. My name is Renalini Day, and I'm an academic rheumatology trainee from Liverpool in the UK. Um, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Bryant England, who's going to discuss his work on multimorbidity in rheumatoid arthritis, um, specifically abstract number 1924, which is entitled Patient Clustering Based on Multimorbidity Patterns Predicts Healthcare Utilization and Mortality in Rheumatoid Arthritis Within Independent Real World Datasets. Um, so, thank you for joining us today on Room Now, Dr. England. Um, so to start with um, I think it would be best if you could just please give us a brief introduction to um, yourself um, this study and the need for this work.
5: Yeah great well thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this. Yeah I'm Brian England I'm a rheumatologist at the University of Nebraska and the VA Nebraska Western Iowa Healthcare System and you know one of my big interests both clinically and as a researcher is, you know, understanding this uniqueness about our patients uh, that beyond their rheumatoid arthritis, there are many other chronic diseases that may be affecting, you know, my patients and I'm certain are affecting your patients as well. Um, and I think we've really recognized that these other conditions dramatically impact how we take care of their, our patients RA, uh, but more importantly, how we take care of the patient as a whole and how they're going to do over time.
3: Okay, Great. Um, so particularly um, myself being from the UK, I'm not very familiar with the cohorts that were used for this study. So they were the market scan and VA database. So um, could you just tell us a little bit about the, the cohorts um, and what made them suitable for, for doing this work?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So we exactly the, when we designed the study, we wanted to make sure that it was maximally generalizable. And so we used two very different you know, populations and sources of data. So the market scan data set is a commercial claims data set. So these are generally people who are employed and uh, getting their health insurance through their employer. And uh, this cohort is pretty typical of the US population and of most RA cohorts, and that's a female predominant RA cohort. Uh, the second data set we used was the Veterans Health Administration. So this is a, a government provided um, health insurance and medical care for uh, prior, you know, active military uh, members. And so this, you know, reflecting the U.S. military population is a much more male predominant cohort. So over 90% males, the typical veterans, uh, you know, demographics.
3: Fine. Okay, great. Um, and so then following on from that, how did you um, determine or estimate the burden of comorbidities in patients within these cohorts? And um, I know it varies quite a lot how well these things are recorded within data sets. So Was this information readily available to you and well recorded
5: yeah so that is a great question you're absolutely right this widely varies study to study and there's not really consensus you know i think we have to you know acknowledge that there's not consensus on the best way to assess these other chronic conditions so both of these you know had administrative data at the core of them and you know that has strengths and limitations the strength is that you know, all of the medical care that these patients are receiving, they're going to be having billing diagnoses, you know, placed at each of these health encounters. And so we were able to capture all of those in both of these cohorts. So we feel like we had a pretty robust capture of these conditions. Now, you know, for transparency, the, the opposite of that is the limitation. And the limitation is, is that sometimes the billing code that's dropped at a visit is not necessarily exactly what the diagnosis is. You know, we may learn things over time. So one of the things that we did to try and address that potential misclassification is we required patients to have at least two diagnostic codes for each of the chronic conditions we were assessing and they had to be separated in time to make sure this was really, you know, truly a stable chronic condition um, and not a diagnosis that was being worked up further or a rule out diagnosis.
3: Fine. Okay. Um, And for those who may not be so familiar with um, the methodology that was used here, can you give us a brief overview of cluster analysis and why it was well-suited to this work?
5: Yeah, no, this is, (laughs) the analytics here are are challenging. It certainly took our team some time to work with them, uh, particularly because we actually layered sort of two data mining approaches. Um, So the first data mining approach that we did uh, was some work we actually presented last year. So we assessed, you know, 42 different chronic conditions. And the challenge becomes, you know, what are these unique patterns within those different chronic conditions? And so the first thing we do is a factor analysis. And the goal of that is to say, we understand there are 42 conditions, but within these conditions, a lot of them are going to be related to one another. And that's something that makes clinical sense to us because when we see patients, we frequently see them have, you know, some of these conditions tend to go together. You know, we see patients who, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, you know, we are comfortable that those frequently come together. So we did this first approach of factor analysis, where we reduced down these 42 conditions into unique patterns of multimorbidity. So in both data sets, we found there were about four patterns of multimorbidity that were the most commonly observed. And these were really cardiometabolic, cardiopulmonary, and mental health and chronic pain multimorbidity. But then we wanted to do one other step of data reduction, and that's if we applied those patterns to a large RA cohort, could we then, you know, figure out what are the unique clusters of patients themselves, you know, based on their multimorbidity patterns? So within these large data sets, you know, where we have tens of thousands of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, we then applied those patterns. And then we asked our computer program to go ahead and sort those people into groups of individuals that looked a lot like them based on their multimorbidity patterns. After doing that, then we could find there were about three to four unique clusters or groups of RA patients that were very similar in terms of their multimorbidity phenotype.
3: Okay. Yeah, that makes much more sense now. Thank you for going through that with us. Um, so can you just give us a brief summary of what the results were once you Uh, done all of
5: of this work. Yeah. So what we found was that we found there were three to four unique clusters of RA patients with very similar multimorbidity phenotypes. You know, as we somewhat expected, some of this seemed to be a severity or a burden of multimorbidity. So within each of the data sets, we found there were, you know, lower multimorbidity burden groups. There were moderate, high multimorbidity burden groups. And these groups, if you looked at some traditional comorbidity measures, so the Charles Deo Comorbidity Index, or if you looked at the rheumatic disease comorbidity index, you know, there's a pretty, you know, um, logical increase in those values across these patterns. What was really unique, though, was that in both of these data sets, and again, we we did an unsupervised clustering, but in both data sets, there was this unique cluster of RA patients. This group was younger. This group tended to have more females in it. And their comorbidity scores, their traditional comorbidity scores, were kind of in the middle of the road. And this surprised us. And we were like, what is this unique cluster of patients? And so we went back and we looked at the multimorbidity phenotypes across these clusters, and we were really floored that these unique clusters were driven by mental health and chronic pain. So 80 to 90 plus percent of the patients that were in this cluster had mental health or chronic pain multimorbidity. And that was the exact same in the market scan data set. Again, a you know, commercially insured female predominant RA population and very similar to the VA population. You know, it's 90 percent male. So to so, about as different data you know, cohorts that you could get, we saw the same thing, a unique group of RA patients really characterized by mental health and chronic pain multimorbidity. But we wanted to take this one step further, not just understand who are these patients, but really understand what does this mean going forward? You know, if we can talk to our patients about what their outcomes look like over time. And we saw that patients with greater burden of multimorbidity, so clustering to these moderate to high severity of multimorbidity, those individuals had a lot of healthcare utilization. They were going to the emergency room. They were getting admitted to the hospital. They were having a lot of outpatient care visits. But also that unique group of mental health and chronic pain, not only did they have a higher tendency to use the outpatient visits, emergency room, inpatient care setting, they had the highest. So even compared to the high burden of multimorbidity cluster, those in the mental health and chronic pain group were using more healthcare than those. But it's not just about healthcare utilization, it's also about what their lifespan looks like. And so within the VA, we were able to look at what their risk of death was based on which cluster of multimorbidity they fell in. And we saw some tendency that those with moderate to severe multimorbidity had a higher risk of death, although some of that was explained by other potential confounders. But again, what was really unique was that mental health and chronic pain cluster tended to have a little better survival, crude survival. But once we accounted for them being a younger population and some of their other uh, you know, potential confounders, that mental health and chronic pain cluster had the highest risk of death. So about a 10% increased risk of death if you fell in that mental health and chronic pain cluster. And I think that's something we as clinicians don't necessarily appreciate very well, that these individuals with mental health and chronic pain, not only are they you know, going to have more healthcare utilization, but it actually has the potential to shorten their lifespan.
3: Yeah no absolutely I think that's what drew me to this work when I read the abstract initially that uh, you know I don't think mental health and chronic pain even though we've got an increasing body of evidence that's um, showing us that these are so highly prevalent in our RA population uh, we just don't have you know for whatever reason we just don't assess and then we don't subsequently manage it in maybe the correct ways or as we should. And so, yeah, it's very, very striking what your results have shown, actually, and just adds to the uh, the, the need, in the indication to sort of, you know, um, manage these better, um, more holistically, uh, maybe. Um, so I guess coming off the top of that, what, what are the implications, would you say, for clinical practice?
5: Yeah, so I think, you know, this really further shows us that, you know, multimorbidity is a topic where we need, we need more evidence, right? I mean, the challenge is that we don't have good guidance, right? We know these things are out there, but what are the, you know, how does that change how we practice as rheumatologists? How does this change what therapies we use? How does this change what care we give these patients? And that evidence really is lacking. And so we're stuck in a little bit of this conundrum where we know it's a problem. We can all see it right in front of us. Um, uh, But we don't have great guidance. So I think the first issue is just there needs to be much more research into this comparative effectiveness studies or really closely evaluating therapies and management strategies in patients who have a high burden of multimorbidity or different patterns of multimorbidity. The other thing I think is really important is a lot of multimorbidity research has been using comorbidity indices, you know, and we need to move beyond that. Right. Comorbidity indices can tell us, you know, a number of conditions somebody has or we can weight them and feel a little bit better about a score. But what the reason we did this study in part was we wanted to get beyond that. And we know that multimorbidity is really characterized by these interrelationships of these chronic conditions. And so that's why something like factor analysis and cluster analysis were so attractive to us as a strategy was That's the point of these analyses is they understand and they capture the interrelatedness of these other conditions. And so I really want to see, you know, more work. Uh, We have future studies planned, but I want to see other people as well, you know, within their data sets doing similar approaches. And I think finally, what's exciting is, you know, we're in this era of electronic health records, which uh, have certainly had their downsides. And we all, you know, struggle keeping up with uh, messages and clicks and documentation in them but it'd be great to finally see them leveraged for some really useful things. And within electronic health records, potentially we could take different diagnoses or problemless conditions. And if we had, you know, these types of machine learning approaches running, you know, behind the scenes, they could help us pinpoint who these people are having these patterns of interrelated conditions. I think that'd be really exciting.
3: Great. Yes. And I, uh, again, coming, coming from the back of that, would you say there are any limitations to to this these kind of approaches or this work in general?
5: Yeah, absolutely, there are. You know, these these approaches are, you know, for large populations, we've shown we can identify unique patterns, but even within those patterns, we know there are going to be people who are very different, and some of that might be related to the fact that we can't capture severity of these conditions particularly well. You know, it's a lot different. Someone who has you know, mild diabetes that they're able to control with lifestyle modification versus someone who has poorly controlled diabetes, despite a lot of insulin, you know? Um, so the severity aspect of these conditions is one thing that we definitely need to figure out ways to capture better over time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then finally, do you have any follow-up work that's planned, um, on the back of, of this particular piece of this study?
5: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we have a lot of things planned in terms of understanding, you know, how these different patterns may affect their RA outcomes specifically and not necessarily just their general health outcomes. Uh, Like I said before, it'd be great to look at, you know, the therapies that we use in rheumatoid arthritis and understand, you know, in the typical healthy randomized controlled trial population that's used, how are these findings generalizable in the real world where we have a high preponderance of RA patients who are multimorbid? Um, And certainly, you know, doing those types of clinical trials is probably not going to happen, but maybe we can use these same large data sets to understand how our therapies compare in these populations.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for going through your work today with us, Dr. England. Um, So if you'd like to hear more about uh, this particular piece of work, then it's being presented at the Epidemiology and Public Health Abstract Session on Tuesday afternoon of ACR 21. If you'd like to know more about everything that's going on at the Congress, uh, you can follow myself at Dr. Minnie Day on Twitter or at Room Now or go to the Room Now website for further content. Um, Thank you for uh, watching with us today. um, And thank you once again for joining us, uh, Dr. England.
5: Thanks for having me.